Welcome to Solutions, where men come out of the shadows to testify, giving tips in manhood, honor the codes of integrity, and give out real solutions for soul survival. Today, we have a co-podcast thing going on, the Dukan Podcast, mixed with Solutions for Men. I have one of the three here with me, OT. How you doing, man? Man, I'm feeling great, and I love that intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man, I mean, I was so happy that we've met at the WCCE, and I've been excited for this. Since we since we kicked it for a few minutes, because like it's just certain people you meet, and yeah. like you know you could tell you go vibe well, you know. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, are you ready to drop these gems and answer these questions today? Yes, sir. Let's do this. Okay, let's kick it off with the first question from the podcast. It's gonna be a little different today, ladies and gentlemen, listening. But we're gonna go back and forth, and this is kind of like the first time you guys get to actually get me interviewed yeah. today. But what person did you meet or see that gave you the drive towards the man you are today? Who or what defined you? Wow. So shout out to my pops and moms for bringing me into this world. But, uh, <laughs> you know, can't do nothing without them. But I think that it wasn't a person as much as it's been situations. It was a what? Uh, I've said this on our show before. Um, I'm post-kidney transplant, hence the kidney pin on the suit. Um, and that experience I always look back at as a rebirth experience for me. I became hyper aware of my own mortality in a way that I never was before. Because the first time I had a surgery, I was 21. Mm. And I've lived with kidney problems. Like, you know, and again, shout out to my parents because they detected it very, very early. So living life knowing that you're not normal and being reminded that you're not normal as a kid was challenging enough but then going through the surgery experience and everything that happened afterwards really threw my life in a loop and that situation itself is what I would credit to what made me the man I am today absolutely I love the fact that you went through some adversity right. and it made you a better person some people never come back from that tell me something that helped you come back from those transgressions in your life all right how much time you got <laughs> so all right so to take it to take it back to the uh, I was trying to be brief in my response because I'm like I don't know how much details I can get into but let's do it man so I uh, when I, I was born with something called a kidney reflux which most people, yeah, almost all babies in the world tend to have it, but generally your body's so young and still cells are generating themselves that you recover fast from it. Um, in my case, I didn't recover as I should have, so one kidney got a bit more beat up than the other. Mm. And what it means is that what a reflux is is when you urinate, um, the connections from your kidneys to your bladder are not 
as muscles are not strong enough yet. So what tends to happen is some of the urine shoots back and results in something called interior scarring of the kidney, mm. right? But again, you're still a baby, your body figures it out, and then it learns, right, over time. Um, one of them got, did not recover as well as the other. That resulted in something else called kidney dysplasia, which is where it pressures the performance of the other kidney. So from a very young age, I was very lucky at the age of two, mom's being a doctor. She noticed something was abnormal. She spoke to her eldest brother who was a pediatrician. Mm. And he's like, all right, there's this doctor in the UK you guys should go to. He's an expert in um, uh, nephrology pediatrics for kids. Mm -hmm. And he'll be the best person to consult. So that began this journey of my life where every vacation we would travel somewhere new in the world. We'd go see some doctor, someplace, somewhere, everywhere from the UK to Hong Kong to Malaysia to Jordan, other parts of the Middle East. Like, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that my parents never stopped. They didn't just take one opinion. They're like, we want as many as we can get. Because that first doctor, and I remember his name, interestingly enough, he's the only person I actually remember his name till, till date, uh, Dr. Parrott, probably may rest in peace by now. He was quite old at the time. He said that I would have kidney failure by the age of 13 and I would need a transplant by 18 because I believe the laws back then, I mean, medicine then was not as advanced where you could transplant a child. So you had to be an adult, 18 plus, to get a kidney transplant. And as part of that, I, my body would have been my nutrition. So that means I would actually not grow beyond a certain height and a certain weight limit. And there were all these limitations to my life that he projected. And my parents were like, you know what? We're going to ask everybody else. And I'm glad that they did. I mean, I'm glad we got the warning because that prepared them. But then it began this journey. The biggest thing you said to me and that I took in is that the fact that you had a community and you had a village to go to. It oh, yeah. started with the village of having the opportunity to have someone in the medicine field to help you figure out to diversify what you need to do in your next steps. But my question also, my follow-up question to this is the people you've met along your journey who happen to be in this niche of, of information that's going on within their systems, how much have you been an advocate for it now? And how much do you stand firm and let people know like, hey, and do you, have you met other people like yourself? Oh, I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, I always tell people, I mean, because of what happened, I've been very lucky to get tested frequently for everything. Just go do general blood and urine tests as a kid, right? And then after my surgery, I, get, I have to go get tested every 90 days or so, right? So I make sure that my body is performing at optimal. So for most people, you don't know if you're drinking enough water, if you don't know if you're doing something well enough, just go to a medical lab and just get a test just to understand your body better. So I'm better in tune with my internal systems mm -hmm. because of it, right? It taught me a lot. Like, I know all the medical vernacular in the space now. <laughs> you, you know what it makes me think about? Yeah. Back in the day when people would get something called a VCR. Anybody know what a oh, VCR is? Right. VHS tape, right? Then you want, you're old as we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you know what a VCR or any item you get out of the store, most people just plug it in and press play. They rarely read the manual and understand the ins and outs unless you had a malfunction. Exactly. in your system and you don't have the resources to take it to someone who fixes it. Now you got to take it apart. And now you now you work it better than everyone else. But how rare is that air that we don't even read the manual? 
Right. It's right there. Especially when it comes to your body. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. No, with my us. pleasure, man. So real quick, fast forward to 2010. Um, university. I was in university at the time, approaching my senior year, and my nephrologist at the time was like, all right, this is it. Looks like you're going to need a transplant or you're going to end up needing dialysis. Mm. And I've read so much about dialysis by then. It was a very scary thought. I'm like, you know what? Let's just, if we can do the surgery, let's just go to surgery. Mm-hmm. And speaking about a village, very blessed in, about being Sudanese because in Sudanese culture, it's all, a, we're heavily communal. And this is something that I remember, I'm like, you'd hear a lot about, you know, donors list and getting on lists and mm-hmm. seeing when you can find a kidney or an organ. Mm-hmm. And people lined up to donate. Family, friends, everybody wanted to donate a kidney. Because of the impact my parents had in the community, people wanted to support in any which way they can, right? Not Some of them were literally village folk where my parents, where my father came from. My mom's a city girl, but like my dad, my dad was a country boy. But, you know, they, they, they didn't understand it, but they're like, yeah, whatever you need, right? right. And that for me was a shocking moment, but it made me incredibly grateful and the day of the surgery, so my, my parents said, no, they fought back, and my dad decided to be the donor. And what he said at the time, I remember, before surgery, you got to go to a therapy session together to make sure that you are mentally fit to donate and to receive. Mm. And my father said that, he's like, you know, I was always a financial provider. I wasn't there enough. Their mother did everything. So at least I want to feel like I'm doing something that's not financial. So that's why he insisted to be the one to donate. So my dad ended up being the donor, and surgery went great. Everything went well. Um, unfortunately, a few weeks later, people underestimate our immune system. The doctors underestimate because, interestingly enough, when it comes to African Americans specifically, you get very different medication for as post transplant for your immunosuppressants, so your body can accept the kidney, and. See, turns out it's not just because you have the theory in the medical field is that because of the history of slavery and survival of the fittest over time that you have a very powerful genetic build. Like in women's pregnancies. Exactly. Okay. Right? So then the assumption is that your immune system is a lot stronger than most people, which is fairly true. It makes sense. I get the, uh, I get the, the logic. logic behind it. Mm-hmm. But in my case, my body seems to have had a similar immune system somehow. It just fought back and, you know, the kidney got beat up a little bit and I ended up getting sent back to hospital. And at the time, I think I was in, I was kept in about 30 plus days. And unlike most people when you're in a hospital bed, it's a very lonely space because when you're post-transplant, you're heavily immunosuppressed. And that means your body's not going to be able to fight anything, Mm. right? So, You cannot have that many visitors. Barely anybody can come and see you or even stay with you in the room. So it becomes a very, very lonely space. And at the time I was having post-transplant dialysis. So that means you're you're going through dialysis after surgery, not before. Mm. And plasma dialysis and things got very, very difficult. And I remember one of the nurses came in. I don't know if it was like a smoker or was sick or something. Whatever it was that they had, I caught it. And at the time, if you're a post-transplant or you're heavily immunosuppressed, what would just give you a sniffles or a couple of sneezes, that could knock me out. Mm. And it did. I started coughing 
constantly to the point where I would cough so hard the bed would shake. And after that, all I remember is just darkness. Mm. I wake up a few days later in the ICU, wake up from this coma, and I had, um, you know, those, those um, oxygen masks, but this was like an industrial size one that gets strapped to your head. Mm. And if, you know, getting into a coma, you're coughing, getting out of it, you, that's, all, that's the last memory you have, so you wake up in panic. Mm. And all I wanted to do was rip it off. And they're like, no, no, you can't. If you take it off, you're dead. Your lungs don't work. Mm. And doctors had to make a choice. Hey, do we save a kidney or do we save your life? You know? Yeah. So they lowered my medication that I, I was being uh, given through IV so that give my bot, my immune system a chance to f- protect my lungs. Mm. And the way he described it is like, think of it like a lawnmower. This machine is pumping air in and out of your lungs for you, and it's trying to kickstart your lungs again. And let's hope it works, right? Uh, thankfully, it did. I'm here today. Right. <laughs> you know? And that moment specifically was that rebirth for me because coming out of that, I was in a very difficult space in my life, you know, um, heavy depression. And at the time, I didn't have the wherewithal to understand that this is what depression is. Didn't want to see people. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, you get suicidal thoughts and you kind of get into this very, very dark space. Mm-hmm. What got me out of it was yeah, I, yeah. I insisted to get back to school. I'm like, I got to get back to university. I can't sit home. I've been cooped up in hotel in, in a hotel and then I was like in hospital rooms and then eventually my bedroom for way too long. I need to be out. And, you know, people now, they're understanding you got to wear masks and all that. But at the time, it was very awkward because my mother was so worried. She's like, you should wear your mask to university. And I'm like, you're going to I'm like, yeah, sure, and I'll wear it. As soon as I'm at the door, I'll take it off, which I shouldn't have. But that's what I would do. And I had a marketing course that I was taking at the time. And I didn't, interesting, I didn't care about school. It was just being out, Mm. right? And it was an 8 a.m. class. And once you kind of had this dance with death in some way or, you know, kind of not knowing if you're going to live to see tomorrow, um, you, you don't think too much about school if you're in a dark space of, in your life. And I wouldn't always attend class. Didn't care too much about it. And the professor asked me into our class and she said, listen, I'm one of the toughest professors in the school because I don't do this multiple choice stuff, open-ended questions. You're not going to pass my class. You've barely attended you don't even know what's coming in the midterm, right? And I've always been a guy that usually just never tell me that I can't do something. Challenge. Bruh, as soon as I hear that, we're on now. I'm going to take you for your money, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, ah, right, yo, you're on. And I didn't drop the class. And I just, it's marketing. To me, it was just common sense. I walked in and I, into that exam. Not only did I ace it, I walked out with an A- minus in that course. And... To prove my point even further, the following semester, I took three classes with her. <laughs> Just to be that wait, guy. Wait a minute. <laughs> we just went further, further down the agenda. I yeah. See. And in that program, I remember first class I walked in, she's like, oh, seems like you've matured over the summer. You took three classes with me. I'm like, that's, yo, that's a backhanded compliment. Like, I'm not sure. You, you're trying to diss me right now? And she asked me to stay after class, and we we had a cha- uh, we had a chat. And she's like, she she was honest. She's like, listen, like clearly you know your you know your stuff. What happened? Like why? You know what happened that semester? And I told her my story, and she challenged me in that moment. She looked me dead straight in the eyes and said, 
If you are to die today, what have you done for yourself? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> she, and she said it. No, no. If, if, if you are to die today, what are you leaving behind for yourself? You know, what is there to speak for you? And I had nothing. My answer was, I don't know. And she's like, well, maybe you should look into doing something. And that was that slap in the face, that wake-up call that I needed. And that was that, that moment till today I will carry with me for the rest of my life because that was it. It's, to me, it's the same focus that you remember that first doctor's name. Yeah. You're carrying his legacy with you within your breath. Exactly. So he lives on because yeah. of that. Absolutely. I, I, I have more questions hey for man, you, but let's, do it. Let's, see what you, <laughs> let's see what you got for me. Everybody wants to hear people ask me questions. Too. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, you walked in here talking about you wrote a book. So <laughs> before we get to your book. I come bearing gifts, though. Here you go. You, you can hold it oh, there snap. before we get to it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at this. 10 Most Effective Ways to Reignite Self-Love. Yo. Yeah. Coming through with the title. Coming through. Hey, man. All right. I'm excited for this. Let me get the young photos. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell nobody. All right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you said your wife is from Brooklyn. Yes. You're from the Bronx. Yes. What are you doing here? We're in Dubai right now. What are you doing here? I'm in Dubai because my wife expressed to me that she wanted to teach abroad. And I had a long career in entertainment and hip-hop and also working for UPS. Mm -hmm. And... It was time for a change. I said, sure, I will support whatever you want to do. So we came out here and that was it. What career? For me? Yeah. What, what did you do in hip hop? Uh, I used to I used to be an MC and a uh, live entertainer. Okay. And then I traveled a lot and tried to really harness the career. And I was successful at some points, but I had reached the point where it was time for growth. Hmm. And not that I'm not an MC anymore, but it's just a different different avenue, different street that I'm walking down now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're still behind a mic. Yeah, still behind so a there, mic. So there's that. I mean, yo, to be honest, shout out to everything hip hop culture. Right. It, it had such a critical role in who we are today. Absolutely. Because you were part of that. Yeah, I am. I am the Sudanese kid that grew up yes, outside of the US that dealt with a lot of racial profiling and issues in this part of the world where back then, I would get into fistfights with kids in school my entire life. I'm the eldest of four boys. I had to fight and protect my younger siblings, right? Because of, and it wasn't, I mean, looking at it now, there was no malice or ill intent, but it was just ignorance. Unfamiliarity. Exactly. And I understood there was this hierarchy and classism of black people that people unintentionally put into things. Well, people don't, you know what? Many people don't understand the dichotomy of that. Yeah. That, that capitalism, that, that sensationalization. Exactly. Exactly. Right? That so, nepotism. All yes. the isms, right? All the isms. Within us. Not even outside. No, no, no. Within I mean, us. And, and, you know, we, all, like, I mean, honestly, shout out to, like, Charlemagne the God for talking about black privilege because that is a huge privilege that mm -hmm. we don't get to talk about because growing up, we come from the Martin and the Fresh Prince era, right? right? Correct. You'd see that on TV. You'd see performers on MTV and hip-hop artists and music. And we'd see NBA and black athletes. And they, the way I saw it, being a 12, 13-year-old in school, they were coveted. Everybody, all the guys wanted to be them. All the girls wanted to be with them. And, but then I was treated so differently. 
And that drove me insane with so many questions of what makes them different as black people then. Uh, they look like me, those same people on TV, right? right? right. And for the first time, also, that's when I saw my likeness. Because up until that point, media here did not show me successful black people doing their thing. How you, how you like it today? Yo, love it today. Because today it's accessible to anybody and everybody on your phone. And you don't have to be that celebrity with a few gatekeepers that decide what you get to see on TV and what you get to hear on the radio, mm. right? And I remember my cousins would fly in from the U.S. or from Europe. They bring all the source magazines and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they got me all tapped in. So what do you do? Rock your... <laughs> we, there, there's a marketplace here where we used to go and get bootlegs, Sean John jeans and mm. rock aware. There's also a marketplace <laughs> in New York where you can get that stuff from too. Right? And it you know, you guys. A lot bruh, of people was rock it to school. And I went to private school. So we had school uniform. And just like the Fresh Prince with that reverse jacket that okay. he had. So let me give you a caveat. <laughs> I, I went to private school as well. Oh shit. So <laughs> my so, people. Yeah so so we we try to do different things, maybe rock some fly sneakers or Bruh. loosen up the tie low. I would buy my school like... uniform four sizes bigger. <laughs> <laughs> with the yellow Timberland boots. Yeah being from the Bronx rocking nice <laughs> nice nice Yankee hat to go with the outfit. Yeah. Something that hip hip made it hip-hop some kind of way, especially being from the Mecca. Yeah. It's just, we don't even know that we, we knew we had something, but we were just living in our style. We had no idea it ingratiated itself to where it is yeah. now. When I traveled to Athens, Greece, the whole entire city is full of graffiti. Yeah. Like, it's tatted up. Bro, I got to take you to Saudi Arabia and show you what that Saudi graffiti looks like. Oh, man. Man, you, this is the thing. You come from that Mecca. We sat at a podcast table just like this. We interviewed Carlos Mayer, mm. which not many people would know unless you're in the OG hip-hop scene. He was one of the original graffiti artists in the 1970s in the Bronx mm. from, you know, the New Ricans of New York City. The New Ricans, wow. he, And, you know, if you ever seen Star Wars documentary, he was that little 13-year-old kid in that documentary, right? And this was the early days of our show. He sat there and he's like, when I travel the world, I travel with two passports. He's like, I got my American passport that got me through borders. And I have this hip-hop passport that gets me into spaces and cultures. He's like, B-boys, same thing. You can, they'll give you a sofa to sleep. If you got nowhere to go, mm. but you're part of the hip-hop community, you'll have a roof over your head. You'll find a sofa or a floor or a bed to sleep on. And somebody's going to feed you. You're set. Yeah. Right? And that's something I'm forever grateful for because... Even though I'm not an American, but I that culture became mine because it gave me a home. But it you're hip hop, though. Exactly, that's a whole other thing. It gave me an identity. It gave me a home. It gave me a space that I could call mine and can do everything within my powers to contribute to. I mean, bro, when I was a teenager, I got into. I tried to MC. I, <laughs> I got into graffiti. You know, I, I actually uh, DJ. Yo, I, I, and I remember I got turntables back yeah, then. So you got a different to, respect for it. Yeah, exactly. Which is no offense to Serato, no. but back in the day, it was, a a different lot, it was a lot more work to be something. Yeah. Now you and, can practice at the house, but before right? you had to actually have the money to buy the records and have somebody carry them. Exactly. And, and I understood stuff. that. Like, anywhere I go in the world now, it, I will always find my people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter your race, your background, where you come from. I always feel comfortable. I moved to the Bay Area. I was in school. I lived in Oakland. And I've never felt more comfortable in my life. Listen, the Bay is responsible for a lot of taglines in hip-hop. Yeah. 
we don't talk about that much, but you guys, uh, Yo. I get a beta's props. Yeah, well, let's, let's do it. And For shizzle. You know, <laughs> you know and I, I went to New York and I made it a point. It's like, it's like for Muslims, for us, going to Mecca and Saudi Arabia, I went to the Bronx and I'm like, I want to see this. Oh. I went to 123rd Park and I walked around and I'm like, mm. I just wanted... Did you go to Sedwick Avenue and all that? Yes. Okay. And I'm like, it was just... And I was on my own. I was just, this is just for me. Yeah. Like, it's just paying my dues and paying my respects. Like, I have to go there. Yeah. Right? So that was also part of my journey. Absolutely. So, dude, like... This started by youth for youth, and it will always have this adolescence energy about it. No matter how old you get, it always keeps you young. Can I give you a, a caveat? Yeah. I don't know if you know this about yourself. You said you just wanted to go outside, right? Yeah. Right? That's how hip-hop was started. I mean, it started with house parties, of course. Yeah. But those are people who just wanted to go outside. That's it. Go outside and have a good and time. And be free. That's of whatever oppression. If you yes. look at the Bronx in the 70s, these are half-built buildings with bricks. Man. And <laughs> I read every book, watched every documentary I could get my hands on. If you could see the buildings, and you you wouldn't believe that people lived in them, right? Now I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. I let's like do to ask it on the show. That was too heavy, maybe. So let's no, let's, no, 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 no. This is this is where we go on okay, solutions. Good. I'm here for it. What have you procrastinated on, and why? Bro, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Somebody, you know what, funny story, somebody else told me the other day, they call it, uh, what was it, they, they, they call it strategic laziness. Strategic <laughs> laziness, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new name for right? procrastination. Yeah, give yourself a chance to recover. Um, so, Strategic laziness. Right? <laughs> I, my, so my mind goes, so I'm not a linear thinker. I've learned that recently about myself. My mind would go into thousand different directions at the same time, and I try to pull different information from it. Absolutely. And make sense of it so my average work day my nine to whatever it doesn't look like oh i'm a block this hour for emails that hour for that i could be responding to an email i get something else that takes my focus completely away from it i'll deal with that and then i'll be writing a presentation proposal for something else oh but i got to deal with finance so within an hour i would have done way too many different things that i should not have i need to be more organized noted it's just focus it's just focus which i think just self-diagnosed But would it be fun if you had to focus? No, no. I wouldn't diagnose it. It just sometimes, yeah. would it be fun? Because oh now, now it's fun. I feel to, more productive when I'm focused. Right. For sure. Productive. But is it fun not to bounce around like I got to do this or that? Yeah. You, it's an intensity that makes you go without eating, makes you go without sleeping. Yes. It's, it's a different, it's, a, it's another focus. Exactly. It's exactly. a broad span of right? things. So, omnipresence. <laughs> so, uh, omnipresence. That's a good one. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I think for me it was one of those things. Where I'm like, all right, yo, I gotta, I gotta be better at this. But procrastination, generally, I realize when I, the more I procrastinate about things, are because I'm just feeling beat or defeated, or creatively I'm not there. For me, when I procrastinate about things, it's because I have so much to do. I don't know which one to tackle first. Yeah, it just puts that me too. Still, me like, oh, I have all this to do, and I just look, yeah. at, I just stare at it in my mind. Like, so question, like. How do you make time to write this? How because I pro, writers are the worst procrastinators from what I hear. Well, it, <laughs> okay, so I was on an app called Clubhouse. Oh, familiar with it? Right, and uh, I would hold these room sessions, and the rooms were, were extremely long. Yeah. One time we did a fifteen-hour room straight. What? Yeah, fifteen hours, and and hundreds of people came in to usher and ask questions about the topic. Uh, I think we did one about suffering in silence. That's a broad span mm. of things underneath that. And we tried to curtail it towards marriages, but many people came in with different topics and situations. We had uh, women come in, men come in. We had one woman in particular 
And it's easy to seg on Clubhouse. It's so easy to segue into something completely different. But we stayed stayed with it for 15 hours. We had one woman come in and talk about how she she was a, she saved herself for marriage but she was a very beautiful woman she saved herself for marriage and then when it came time to consummate every time she wanted to consummate with her husband she could see jesus in the corner oh god she could never turn it off she can because wow. her, her religion yeah she was christian so she saw jesus in the corner and we we're not we're not therapists so everybody was just talking women were giving information and you have these mantras and all these people who are professionals coming yeah. in so just get to get to talking and i was moderating all of it so many people were like, hey, man, you should write a book, man. All the stuff you say. And I say, just through my life experiences and talking to other people, when you engage in people, you pick up things to your tool belt. So a friend, uh, a friend of mine named Kenny and my, and my brother Jamal both were like, hey, you should write a book. And I said, okay, cool. So I came up with 10 most effective ways for self-love. And then my friend Malik was like, hey, man, you're reigniting it, man. Use the word. Help me out. I'll give Malik his credit. So I say reignite. I said reignite. That's it right there. This is where you need those air horn sound effects. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. the Jamaicans. Like, yeah, hit it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. Yeah. Shout so, out to your brother, man. Yeah. So 10 most effective ways to reignite self-love is really about people like myself who, who've had it, who was popular, mm-hmm. and you let it go, and then you needed something else to come, come out to ask for Phoenix. Like coming from yeah. hip-hop culture... No, you didn't hear about me on the BET Awards. That didn't mean I want, didn't want to be there. It just wasn't in the cards for me. Didn't right. mean I didn't try. Didn't mean I didn't put in all the work that shooting in the gym like any other person would shoot. I just wasn't a star player in the game. Mm-hmm. But I was in it, and I really enjoyed it. I met a lot of star players, played along a lot of star players, but I was just the 12th guy on the bench. Right. But that, would, that, did not, that does not mean where I came from, I wasn't a success story for the people who were watching. Right. So for me to fall all the way off and think that I wasted my time, because I did feel like I wasted my time running around trying to be what I thought was my purpose. And now how do I get that back? So this book yeah. is for the people who want to start something, but this is for the people who lost it in the fire and need it yeah. back because think, you had it. I completely agree. And just as a note to that idea, of like the people in the neighborhood, the community are watching. Something important to note is that People are always watching, even when you forget. And you forget, you, you, sometimes you forget it or it might not have been said, but people, there's always somebody looking up to you, even if it's one person. Mm-hmm. How do you make that person's life better? That just one, right? It's not about the millions of views or listeners. Great if you got it. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Good for you. But what is it? How are you impacting them? Right. Right. Because everybody's watching. Your younger siblings are watching. Your ex neighborhood, your ex neighbor is watching. And everybody's paying attention. Absolutely. And granted, you might have not made it to the division one, but you know, you were the ball player that ended up making it to Europe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're still watching. And my boy's playing in Europe. And what I did was I started to take my personal experiences and think about how much they helped me. And then I didn't worry about being certified or being a therapist, but. I did do the due diligence and I called a certified therapist professional that I know and I ran through these 10 things. Mm. And I said, I want to make sure I'm not stepping on anyone's toes. And you know where I got that whole frequency from? DJ. Mm. When I thought about people that do DJ with just digital now, can you? are you in comparison to a Kid Capri versus her, someone who just yes. started? Are you showing respect to the person who carried the records and the turntable? So I had to make sure I show respect. I learned that through hip-hop. Show respect to the people that actually had to do more groundwork than you. Right. So they understand a different type of brick masonry work it took to build it. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't 
therapeutically or mentally playing with anybody's mm. emotions when I wrote something. And then I decided to write it. It took me three days. I did not leave my computer. I wrote it straight from my mind. I No I, procrastination. No procrastination on this. <laughs> I'm I, impressed. I sent myself through a rigorous amount of knowledge and information to learn how to properly produce a book, how to properly copyright the book, how to properly do these things. I sent myself in a two-week... You got to send yourself back to school when you Yo, want to do And self-publish. And self-publish. All, all of right. those things. There we go. And we did it. And, and I was able to do it. And then uh, one, one thing I want to warn everybody about, when you, when you birth this baby, don't be afraid to let somebody else, the doctor, take a look at it. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is once I finished writing it, I was like, nobody can read this until it's published. Nobody. <laughs> I didn't make any mistakes. I read it over it 10 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you made mistakes. Of course. They're in there. Yeah. And I'm sure they're probably still in there now. But I let other people... Uh, assess the situation and they found mistakes and I'm happy they did yeah. and but that's good because now you got to do a 2.0 later yeah get a 2.0 so but no not this version actually before I put it out oh I, before you so put yeah, it out you okay, got an okay. advanced copy it's not even out for, it's going out probably out for sale in like a week right, I got to get this autograph when we're done yeah, absolutely and one of the things there's two things in there one thing that I accomplished and one thing that I'm currently struggling with and the first one is um, interview your parents I did that I'm yet to do that. I'm trying to get my dad on the show for a minute. Yeah. Just in general, though, if you're a general person, each year of each segment of your life, whether you're young or in your 20s or you're getting into an elder statesman, like if you have the opportunity to interview your guardians or your parents or somebody who has a close characteristic trait of you, ask them, I say 20 questions of the hard stuff, Mm. the hard stuff, because you unlock things about yourself. For me, ask my dad, why did you leave? We had a single parent home. He explained it to me. And when I start to do the due diligence of his pastimes and what they believed in, it was different. It was different, and some people would say that it was foolish, but back then it wasn't so much. He left because my mom got a job. Hmm. Now think about that in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, how that's when women started to really work and really assert themselves. It wasn't normal, just like you said, growing yeah. up in Sudanese. Yeah where you wanted to be hip-hop, but nobody knew why. Mm-hmm. And look at it now, where a woman wanted to work, and a man was like, no, my father told me women don't work. If you work, I'm going to leave you with these, you know, wow. I'm going to I'm going I'm to go. And now he admits that I was a big mistake, but during the, the changing of the guard or just the development of this society where people can work just as much as women, men oh, can yeah. work, you know, I mean, to, to add perspective to that, um, I remember I took a program, which... I'm so grateful I did. Um, everybody's got 2020 vision in hindsight, mm-hmm. right? But for us to accept, not just us, but everybody else, that was the best decision available to them at the time based on the knowledge bank that they have at the right, time. Right, right. Right? So that's what he thought was the right thing in, in his mind. Mistakes done. You know, yeah. I'm not here to judge, but, you know, to him, that's what he thought he sh- was the right, right thing for him to do. He probably might regret it now, but at the time, again, it was just 2020 vision in hindsight. At the time, he didn't know better. And that's just one question, right? Yeah. And for me, like, it unlocks a lot of things because I'm a man now. I'm a man yeah. with a family. So when you, when you say these things to me, I receive it differently yeah. as if I was a child. Probably as a child, I wouldn't understand. But as a man, oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let, let's, let's, let me help you, Dad. Let me let you be a great grandfather. There we go. Be a better grandfather than you were a father. I don't have to tell my son that we had these transgressions. What we can do is repair this family right now through me and let you be a great grandfather. Most definitely. And you coming through, like, with no judgment. Yeah. With no aggression, no, no malice. 
of just wanting to know better. The information. And information and learning from these very difficult 20 questions. Just small things. Like, yeah. I didn't know he was a juggler. He used to juggle, and I didn't know why I can catch stuff without looking it. Just catch Ooh. things, catch things. Sorry, catch <laughs> things. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. I unlocked right. a new skill. That's where that came from. So did you play ball or was... You... I did play basketball. I was, I, was, I was decent. I was decent. I didn't play any football. I was half the size I was now. But, <laughs> but you know, some of this good, delicious food from around the world catches up on you when you're sitting down and eating. So absolutely, absolutely. I got a question for you, though. This is one of my funner questions. All right. Hey, and I hope, hope we got some time. Yeah, don't worry about it. Did you ever get a sex talk? Who or what gave you oh, sex education? Yes, I did. I recently <laughs> spoke about this. Yo, okay. <laughs> that is a fun question. Right. I mean, I don't know how uncensored can we be on your show, but well, I'm going to tell you, it anyway. Listen, this is, a, this is a podcast for information. Talk freely. Yes, sir. Be who okay. you are. That's so, what we want. Very, very, very awkward is an understatement. So <laughs> I was 13 and, you know, as, as, as Muslims, my dad came back from, you know, evening prayers, came back to the house, and he sat me down, and he was like, um, yeah, we got to talk, and he gives me the birds and the bees talk. Mm. And I had no idea what he's talking about at the time. I'm like, wait, what? Right? And it was so strange because I certain words made sense because I've heard them in school, mm. right? The older kids would say them. Yeah. You know, like, oh, my God. How was that, you know? Yeah. And so it, it, it went like this. It's like, okay, so men are born differently from women. Men got penises. Women got vaginas. And to make a baby, the very literal and very medical, is like the man inserts his penis into the vagina <laughs> and <laughs> spreads something called sperm that oh. goes into the egg, right? And then that grows to become a baby. And I'm, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm messing up science right now. I forgot. It's men or something. Uh, so, Mitosis, meiosis, something. I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I remember it. I can't but, remember either. So, so it, was, it was that, right? Yeah. And, it go, and then he says, like, any questions? I'm like, I don't know what to ask. Hmm. Like, give me some time to digest this information. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, at the time, so I'm like, eh, and he just shrugged and left, right? But <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it was just... Escape that one. That's, yeah, like, <laughs> that's it, right? That's and it. I'm sure he was very relieved that I left, yeah. right? Like, he was very awkward about it and very, like, blunt. But my that's my dad's nature. My dad is very by the book in everything, right? Very methodical and just, like, straight to the point kind of guy. Um, he, when it comes to difficult conversations, that's how he likes to do them. So, and we just left it at that. We've never spoken about it again. Why do you think we run from these conversations, though? Because so, it, something is so important as sex can really shape your entire completely, life. Completely, completely, right? And I think this is what makes us different from our parents' generation. Because the way I approach sex and everything else in my life is very different from the way do, they do things. Like, granted, I'm a Muslim, but let's be honest. Like, bro, I went to a school with some fine ladies. So, you know, <clears throat> that, that talk at 13 went out one way. And I remember a big part of it was that he's trying to talk about STDs and STIs and AIDS and everything. And he was like... Which is super important. Which is necessary, right? And he's like... And I remember this line specifically. He's like, a mistake of 10 minutes would last you a lifetime. Mm. And later on, you learn, like... People are like, yeah, is it really 10 minutes, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But, like, so anyway, so um, 
so that that was, that was the conversation. So, but then by the time you're like you're 16, 17, you're getting in your early 20s, bro, hormones make you forget everything he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you want to have way too much fun, right? So that was that was the sex talk, man. That was you, you know, know that. It, it, it's, <laughs> I think I think there are some obscure families that approach sex openly. Yeah, a, and and people we look at it as weird. Like, why are you? But there's something that? to learn from there's them. There's something to learn from them because now. What is the best thing that kept you out of trouble when you weren't supposed to be? You would you would be out doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Not not sex, just in general. And if your parents are right there, like you better not do that. You're gonna you get remember trouble. that ass whooping. You remember exactly is what it is. You remember what what comes the <laughs> yeah. accountability it's from PTSD it. PTSD of that ass whooping. Yeah, yeah. You remember like mm -mm, well, I don't think I'm doing I don't this. think we're gonna go inside the window of this place and try uh -uh. to just get a little candy. We're not gonna do that. Like you yeah. guys can go, but you my mom go. or dad would kill me. Yeah, so exactly. I think if we talked about sex a little bit more, especially from where in America where. It is used as taxation for representation for sometimes yeah. if you have kids or anything else that that can tie you to stuff that might not financially work for right. you or might not help on both sides, men and women's sides. It's, yeah. it's a taxing situation. Right. So, so as a strategist. Um, procrastinating strategist. Procrast that's strategically isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, a procrastinating <laughs> strategist. So I read this book a while back by Dr. Cloté Rapai, who's a French... Uh, professor, psychology, sociology professor um, that has moved to the States and he has contributed heavily to advertising industry in the US. Um, he created something called the Culture Code, which is also the name of his book. And every culture has a code for something, right? So for example, when it comes to something as stupid, as silly as cheese, right? It's like the culture for cheese in America is death, whereas in France is alive. Right, because the way you treat cheese, you treat it like a dead body. You put it in the freezer or in the fridge. It comes in plastic bags that you have to seal, right? And it has chemicals added to it to preserve it for a little longer. Whereas, like, whereas in France, we treat it like a living thing. It sits in room temperature. When you want to buy cheese, you you tap it, you smell it, you make sure it's living, right? It's fermented, and there's a process to maintain that over time. Mm -hmm. And the stinkier it is, so the more life it had, the more expensive or the more exciting it becomes as cheese mm. right so that's why that's life so and i thought that was really interesting and he covered sex as well and he's like sex in america is actually the code word for that he described was violence in american culture okay because like he's like if you ever and you see it in films as well where this fight this argument this moment that happens between a couple and then they end up making out and for for somebody that's not American, that's so confusing. Like, y'all were just about to kill each other a second ago. Like, and y'all making love now. Mm -hmm. Right? We find it passionate. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So then, and, and the thing is that the, the way he explains it is because in in an American context, it's, it's uh, weaponized. Right. Right? It's weaponized for you or against you, and depending on how people use it. The way it's described, the way it's used in films, even in, in daily life, even though, yes, American culture is very open mm. about sex, right? But it's like, it's actually not because you don't have these conversations. Whereas in French culture, for them, it's like, it's the exact opposite. We are, for them, sex is very open. Yeah, and it's yeah, about yeah. freedom and it's about expression. And you often and, see it in some movies where they say, you want to go for a round or two? And they'd be like, okay, is yeah, that easy? Exactly. For it, them, it's, it's that because they've, Culturally, they're, they're very different. They, and it's just like, or for example, when it comes to alcohol, mm. right? For in French culture, it's like his son started drinking at 13, but for them, it's to learn how to enjoy 
and not overindulge. Exactly. Like you understand champagne, you learn the grapes or the wines or whatever, the different flavors, and you get to enjoy it and indulge in it. The same way you'd enjoy a steak, you know, there's a, an art form to food. Right. Right? Whereas that, the other side is like, let's get wasted. Like why was the objective? Let's get to the other end. <laughs> right. So my, my, one of my famous uh, things I go by in the movie Incredibles, mm-hmm. there's a line he said, what everybody's super, no one is. Yes. So if you're teaching everybody that we have this culture where everybody starts sipping wine at 13, who's trying to get drunk at 18? Not really. I mean, yeah. they're going to have some wine here and there, but I don't think they are. Yeah. How early did you start goal setting? Do you have a vision board? So I, this time of year, I usually, right before Christmas, I like to sit in vision board. Um, sometimes I write them down. Sometimes I do them in my head. Um, but I take that time for myself to course correct, and I do it again on my birthday in March. Um, and th- th- even though like they're quite close together, but I do that for, for my benefit. I've yeah. never heard nobody say they course correct during the vision board. I heard people say they vision boards, yeah. but they I heard people say they do they have a roadmap to the goal on the vision board. Yeah. But course correct yeah. that is something I've never heard. Yeah, because New Year's is or around Christmas is a perfect time to put your vision board for the new year, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Instead of, you know, having my New Year's resolution, oh, this is my vision board. And I realize we get so caught up in the day-to-day of life that you forget what you've set for yourself. So I get lucky mm-hmm. because my birthday's in March. I like to look back at what I've decided I wanted to do just as a refresher. And if I'm deviating from it, I pull myself back into and course correct, right? Um, another great tool, which actually my cousin used to do this as a uh, when she was younger, and she's a university professor today. Um, she had A plus written on a piece of paper in her closet, right? And she had, and I remember was that like uh, to be a professor, and that's what she'd look at every single day, her entire life, until she got. Not only did she get there, she's one of the best you know, doctors. She became. She went to med school and then became a university professor. And she's great at it and she loves what she does. And I learned that part of vision boarding is not to complicate it. It could be that one thing you want to be better right. at, you know, and set this reminder for yourself every single day. Sometimes you'll, and you'll forget it's there, but subconsciously your mind picks up yeah, on it picks every up time. On it. Yeah. All right, we got three rapid questions left and we get do ready to wrap it up. All right. Are you ready? Let's do this. Let's get it popping. What are the top three things you wanted a woman? Ooh, this was good. Okay, so understanding. Um, another one is compatibility. And three, which is I think probably one of the sexiest things I see in one, is intelligence, intellect overall. Bravo um, to you, sir. The one I always stress is intelligence, and you yo, hit it right on the head. Yo, like intellect is sexy because we're both going to age. At some point, we're both not going to look like we did when we were 30. And... You got you to gotta have somebody that gets Mind stimulation. Amen. So how much are you trying to understand communication? Are you familiar with the five love languages? Yes, I am. Absolutely. Mine are time and touch. Absolutely. I love to hear those kind of questions. So now you have to answer one of these. You have to pick one. It's subjective towards you. Okay. Would you rather have a great, as a husband, as a husband, let's put mm-hmm. you in the husband category. You know, sure. you Would you rather have a great woman or a great wife? Ooh. And explain. Your choice. Do I get context on why you chose? The context is all you. Words? Oh, that's on me. So it's yeah. how I get it. I yeah. understand it. Yeah. So first off, by the way, communications is information. How information is received, not how it's being sent. But mm-hmm. which I, I, I was 
I thought it was very interesting when I learned that because everybody translates information differently. Yeah, you ever read a text and thought somebody was yelling at you, but they weren't? Exactly. Right? <laughs> so that's a good example. Um, okay, so would I rather have a woman or a wife? Yeah, as, as, a, as a husband, a, would yeah. you rather have a great woman or a great wife? Mm. I would say a great wife because... Actually, no, a great woman because... I'm going to take that back. So a great woman because I feel like that's more well-rounded. You don't have to just be a great wife to me, but also a great woman within, within yourself for yourself first. I think wife selecting, saying that it's uh, to have a great wife is a very selfish response. Whereas a great woman, she's great for herself first before the marriage. Yeah, most people can love you better when they love themselves and when they Amen. can tell you how to love them. Yeah. Like if you don't know yourself, how can you tell someone how to love you? True. So I, but the answer is wherever you are in your personal preference. So there's no wrong or right answer. Yeah. Next question. As a husband, mm -hmm. would you rather have man of the year or father of the year? I'd say man of the year because at this point in my life, so the, the age difference between myself and my youngest brother is 22 years. Mm. So I've already, I take him to the skate park. I take him to basketball practice. I take, we, we went to the mall yesterday so he can buy gifts for his best friend's birthday, right? So... I feel like I'm learning. He's, to be honest, I'm learning so much from him to his credit. Um, but point being, to be man of the year, just like my previous answer about wife or woman, mm -hmm. um, I need to be better at everything. Being a good husband, being a good father, being a good business person, being good within myself, you know, and uh, being good in my community contributions and the work that I do for people. And it goes back to leaving people better than you found them. Whereas being a father of the year, that means I'm only just doing great for my kids rather than doing, being great for, being good at doing things for the community at large and giving back. Absolutely. I came up with something called operating at 100%. And That's what good. I mean by that is I took five categories, operating at 20% a piece to add up to 100%. Ooh. We have purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. Again, that's purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. Each representing 20% is a way to develop yourself and to keep track of what your progress is when you give yourself an average at the end of the week or the end of the day or the end of the month. Right. If you're operating above 80%, you know you're headed towards your goal. Mm -hmm. Purpose means you're living in your purpose, doing the things you need to do. Health means you're working out, meditating, praying, whatever things you do to keep yourself centered. Knowledge means you took in some new information. Confidence, you did everything without any fear. And money is you saved, invested, or spent money today towards your future. So I actually missed the OT. You represent Dukan today, 1,000%, yes, one of three, one mm -hmm. of many. And how much of 100% have you been operating out of in the last 24 hours? That's purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. I would say probably about, about 90%. What are you missing, sir? When it comes to health, I haven't trained. You haven't trained. I haven't trained yet. <laughs> hey, hey, listen. I'm, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't been like 100% with my workout, so that. Listen, 90% is a real good thing, but you know what you got to do, and now you're keeping track of your footnotes of where you can be the best person you can be. Course to correct. That man of the year award. You got a course correct. Is anybody who would love to come on the Solutions for Men's podcast and drop these gems and answer these questions? Even though she's a woman, but she's worth 
more than a million men. Reem, my business partner, she is a force. I mean, my God, I don't like, I think I got very lucky when we met and decided to build businesses together. Like, my best friend, and she's such an inspiration, a very powerful woman in every regard. And I think that I can't express how much your listeners would be missing out. You know, it's so show. funny. Everybody wants me to bring a female on this show. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I said we're not going to have any females. We're going to have a place for men. And I, I've, really? read some, I've read some of Reem's quotes. I read when she said, sweetheart, just be alone. There's a lot of things to be learned there in solitude and solidarity. Yeah. She's she has, a writer. She has some great quotes there. Yeah. And Reem has been, if I thought my life was difficult, good God, what she's been through. Right. And to come out the other end the way she is and to be inspirational the way she, as inspirational as she is. And more importantly, everything Reem does, does with love first. And coming where she came from to have that as her North Star is powerful. I read something else she wrote and I thought it was super mm. powerful. She said, the male gaze does not empower you. Never has. Never will. There you go. And that, and and. If you're a man, you understand the dichotomy of validation. Yeah. And we have to grow ourselves past validation where we just know that we're doing good. Yeah, no doubt. Um, another great man, uh, a person that you should have on the show, actually, who is male, just to... Uh, listen, I'm listening. <laughs> I take all, I'm I taking can things, I'm taking things people, organically I can here. A lot if Reem is going to be the first one we have, then it's going to be the first one we have. I think he should be. Um, <laughs> but if I am to recommend guys to your show, Carlos Mayer, ah. he, because not only was he a huge contributor to hip hop culture, but he also was at some point the U.S. ambassador of culture. And now he's the curator at the Museum of Graffiti in Miami. So Carlos, guy got stories for days. Bronx overload. Yeah. That would like, be a Bronx overload. Oh, for real? Like, so yeah, I he will it. be. <laughs> like Carlos, yo. Okay. One last person. Sure. Just because... Just, uh, I want to throw him in there. Um, Trinidad James. Trinidad. Because I, because I misjudged him because of his music as well. I remember I told him, like, I thought you was a joker, bro. I didn't think you were a smart guy. <laughs> Can I, because of the music he makes. And w my God, what a guy. Let, let me tell you Dude. something a lot of people don't understand. Um, I will say this, and I'm trying to put this the best way I can. Very smart people know how to do simplistic things better yes. than most. Yes. And what what happens is they figure it out. So when people talk to me about Lil Wayne or someone mm -hmm. they see optically and say, oh, he just drinks lean. These guys are smart. These guys are not dumb. I've Yo. I've been around these people. I've yeah. heard them speak intelligently. I've heard them I've heard them talk in, in in many ways more than one. And these guys are super duper no doubt. smart people. Yo, some of the smartest out there, man. And you know, there's there's a reason why they got to where they are, mm. right? Um, it's not just because the public likes their music, but there's sometimes certain, like, there's something you're missing. Mm -hmm. But also, if you just go through life with the outlook of what can I learn from everybody, right? Then you see the world differently, right? It's not about let's judge them because they're being whack on TV. But no, no, like, why is he doing that? Mm -hmm. Like, learning from Trinidad Gyms is like, I don't trust the banks. I got everything in gold. That's why I sing about, all, I rap about all gold, everything. I'm like, 
For real? He's like, yeah, because like the tax man's gonna come for you. <laughs> so it's like and and but also there's just so much depth that I think when we judge them based on a f- music video or an award speech or whatever it is, there you haven't given it enough time for depth. And that's why podcasts are great. Yeah. Right. Hey. And having those kind of people on the show is great. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Solutions. OT, I thank you. Thank you. Peace and blessings. Peace. Thank you for kicking it with us today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as we enjoyed creating it for you. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast at to stay up to date with all our conversations. Also, if you don't mind, hit us with the five-star rating, leave a comment, let us know how you feel about the show. That way, it could also help others find the show. And be sure to share with your friends and family, whoever you think can benefit from it. You can holler at us on all social media platforms at The Can Show. We'd love to hear from you. Or you could drop us an email to hello at thecanmedia.com. Salam.